the CSU decided to be a little more aspirational and in the 2014 policy update accelerated that goal by 10 years. So we're already committed as to get 80% below 1990 emissions by the year 2040. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. I'm John Fiella. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast and we'd greatly appreciate it if you'd be so kind as to take two minutes of your time today to leave us a review. At our recent Innovation Summit, I sat down with Dennis Elliott, Assistant Vice President for Facilities at California Polytechnic University to discuss Cal Poly's Climate Action Plan and decarbonization efforts. I first learned about the great work that Dennis and his team is doing at Cal Poly on a recent interview for our sister podcast, Beyond the Meter. And I'm thrilled to have had him on for a separate interview at our recent event to share more with our community. Here's the conversation. Dennis, thanks for being with us. Why don't we start by having you give us a description of your current role at Cal Poly? My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to, to share, John. We'd love to let people know what's happening at our institution. So my role at Cal Poly, I've spent my entire career here. It's going to be 38 years coming up in uh, April since I started working at Cal Poly as a student assistant in the campus power plant. I think I'm in my 13th different job over the years. I took over management of uh, energy utilities in about 2005. I'm really proud to share the projects that we've been able to implement over the years and uh, the strategies by which we've done that. Great. I know you're super busy and we've got a lot to cover. So let's let's talk about some of the things you've been involved with. The university has, has a very ambitious climate action plan that among several of its goals includes targeting net zero. While the plan isn't new, I, I'd like you to give the audience a sense of the scope of that plan, how it came about, and what all is involved. Sure. Most people are familiar in higher ed of the concept of master planning, you know, analogous to a general plan for a city. Universities always have to have a master plan to to envision the direction of the institution, understanding as programmatic needs change, as enrollment increases over time, trying to support more students. You have to be looking well into the future to understand the facilities needed to be able to support the academic mission of the university. So I've been involved in two different master planning efforts in my tenure at Cal Poly. And in, in alignment with that, obviously there's a lot of infrastructure issues. From the early part of my career up until a few years ago, we had never done a comprehensive utility master plan. We've done lots of feasibility studies to assess particular infrastructure needs when we knew we needed more boiler capacity or more chiller capacity, or we needed to put a larger transform in the substation. But we'd never taken a deep dive across all utility categories at a master planning level. And so as part of the development of the 2035 campus master plan update, which our our last master plan was in 2001, I believe, we recognized that we needed to take a more holistic look at utility infrastructure needs. And so I got support from the VP and some funding 
to undertake a comprehensive utility master plan for all utilities, electricity, gas, water, sewer, storm drain, district heating and cooling, automation systems, and telecom, really, to look at all of our infrastructure systems, not just opportunistically to support the next big building, but more strategically to look at elements of age, condition, capacity, redundancy, efficiency, and even climate resilience. And so this utility master plan was undertaken and completed right on the tails of the campus master plan and really helps set kind of the vision for where we need to be aiming in infrastructure planning for the future. And we actually took that study beyond the life of the 2035 master plan. We kind of looked at things all the way up to 2055. And just to share some other elements to, to help guide that and frame it, obviously in California, there's lots of work going on that's climate related. California had one of the first legislative actions to set climate standards in the U.S. back in 2006 under Governor Schwarzenegger with Assembly Bill 32, the California Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006, which set a number of mandates for the state and state agencies, some of those being setting a goal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to get back to our 1990 emissions levels by the year 2020. That applied to all state agencies, including the CSU. It was adopted in CSU policy, and and many campuses started work there. In about 2014, we had a system-wide sustainability policy update, which mandated that campuses develop climate action plans to support this goal. And there are some voluntary things that many campuses have done to go above and beyond that. So when we talk about greenhouse gas planning, we've got to make sure everybody understands the, the vocabulary of those specialists. So let's talk about the different categories of, of emissions real quick, just to get us all on the same page. When we talk about greenhouse gas emissions, they're divided into three separate buckets called scope one, two, and three. And at the highest level, we explain those as scope one emissions being your emissions created directly on site. So combustion of fossil fuels, boilers and natural gas in your boilers and water heaters, fuel used in your fleet vehicles, and some emissions of fugitive refrigerants that actually have an impact on global warming. So that would be scope one, the things that we are directly causing emissions on site within the the proper footprint of the campus. Scope two emissions are emissions that we cause, but they take place elsewhere. So purchased grid electricity, use of water. This is an interesting area of of exploration, right? We talked about the energy water nexus. 20% of all energy consumption is used for the pumping, transmission, and treatment of water. So water use has a significant greenhouse gas component, but those emissions happen elsewhere. They happen at the water treatment plant. They happen at pumping stations. So they're not under our direct control, but we create those indirectly. Disposal of solid waste to the landfill, disposal of wastewater to the the municipal wastewater treatment plant. Those would all be scope two emissions. Scope three is where things get interesting. Scope three are emissions that are essentially beyond the institution's administrative control. Commuting, business travel, those are emissions that are harder to regulate and administer, but they certainly contribute to the university's environmental footprint. So scope three emissions actually account for about half of the institution's entire greenhouse gas footprint. And I hear that metric is pretty consistent from my peers across higher ed that are wrestling with this. And the reason I frame all this is that policy in the state of California tied back to Assembly Bill 32 only applied to scope one and two emissions. Many institutions have voluntarily decided to take on responsibility for scope three emissions 
through a voluntary commitment. And the one that we've signed on to is the second nature climate leadership commitment, which essentially says aspirationally, we would commit to owning responsibility for all scope one, two, and three emissions as an institution. We would measure those, report them, and put plans in place to drive those to carbon neutrality and climate resi uh, resilience as soon as possible. And it's the as soon as possible is where the rubber hits the road and there's some interesting opportunity sure. for innovation and how you translate this into action and policy and, and make a demonstrable business case for this. Thank you for that, your perspective on scopes one, two, and three, because it's always a subject of conversation and I think you laid it out very nicely. My understanding is the net zero target was targeted to 2050 and kind of rumor has it you're actually looking to accelerate that. Are you at liberty to share any insights on that possible change? Absolutely. And, and to the 2050 goal, let me just be transparent. There was obviously, as this directive came out in policy, institutions have a lot of priorities. And there's, there's a perpetual tension in higher ed between the fundamental mission of teaching and learning and all the things that have to happen behind the scenes to make that possible. Right? So with limited resources, there's always competition for resources, and there's always a fear, anxiety, or concern at the leadership level of making commitments that have a financial impact that would drain the resources necessary to support the core educational mission of the institution. And so when we first advocated to our executive leadership and our president that, yes, we should sign on to this pledge, and yes, we should set a carbon neutrality goal without the time or resources to do the deep analysis and planning to lay out the business case, the way we framed it was to say, okay, in the state of California, Assembly Bill 32, I articulated that first goal, right? To get mm -hmm. back to 1990 emissions by the year 2020, we already achieved that goal and we did it five years early. And we did it through two things. Number one, the state of California has what's called RPS, the Renewable Portfolio Standards. So the Public Utility Commission in alignment with the state government has laid utility policy that requires the utilities to hit certain renewable content thresholds in their portfolio. So what they self-generate or what they procure on the open market through power purchase agreements or mandates in California for all the investor-owned utilities to hit these targets. And ultimately in alignment with Assembly Bill 32, that would aim for an 80 percent, so that 90, 1990, by 2020 goal was the first, ultimately the state is aiming to go 80% below 1990 emissions by the year 2050. So that's state policy. The CSU decided to be a little more aspirational and in the 2014 policy update, accelerated that goal by 10 years. So we're already committed as a system, as a 23 campus system to get 80% below 1990 emissions by the year 2040. Okay. Now, Back to RPS and what renewables are doing in California, California energy policy is now aiming for electricity to be zero carbon across the entire grid by the year 2045. And so what that means is our progress to meet that 2020 goal, about 50% of the results came from the cleaning up of the state electrical grid through the California RPS standard. But the other half of the progress we made was through two things, investment in energy efficiency, retrofits of existing systems, and continually escalating the performance standard of new construction. So we met that 2020 goal five years early, and we did that in spite of the fact that over that same period of time, the campus doubled in square footage, had a substantial enrollment increase, 
and we doubled the number of students that actually live on campus in university housing. So that was a pretty big eye-opener to show what is possible. And that was not deep, uh, aggressive investment in energy efficiency. That was kind of carving off a slice of the pie that was manageable. What is possible if we, if we get more aspirational and try to make this a higher priority? And so to your question, yes, we are definitely exploring the opportunities to accelerate that goal. All of us are watching in real time as the impacts of climate change are unfolding and impacting our communities. Certainly there's an argument to be made that the wildfires in California are definitely climate driven. Mm -hmm. Extreme weather event we just saw in Texas that led to a collapse of the, the electric grid. Certainly there are climate drivers that would, all the researchers say those type of weather events, right? we've got to differentiate between weather and climate, right? Those type of extreme weather events are going to become more extreme and more frequent as climate change continues to unfold. And so what does that mean? That means 2050 is not fast enough for the planet or the people that live on it. And anybody who could be doing more should be doing more. And our, our policy should be more aggressive. And so we're exploring that. And again, I'm, I know my leadership, they're not going to sign on to an aspirational goal unless we have a clear path to achieve that. Cal Poly mm -hmm. does not like to make commitments without knowing that we can, we can meet them and be successful. We do not want to set ourselves up for failure. What we've undertaken, and this was something I wrestled with for kind of the first couple of years we started working on this. How am I going to build a roadmap to carbon neutrality? What does that look like? Awful lot of projects that need to be under a larger organized planning and financial umbrella so that we are kind of have the org rowing together in the right direction and we're using those resources, both people and financial, to their best and highest purpose. So there will never be enough money available in a public university system to just throw money at a problem like this. We've got to get creative to find efficiencies, creative sources of funding, et cetera. I was attending one of the big statewide sustainability conferences. So in California, we have an annual conference called CHESC, California Higher Education Sustainability Conference, and it involves partners across the entire 23-campus CSU system, our colleagues on the 11-campus University of California system, and the, the community college system statewide. The CSU is the largest public higher education system in the world. Those three higher ed systems are, are just enormous and, and imagine the, both the number of faculty, staff, and students, square footage of buildings and environmental footprints. So to be able to collaborate across this enormous network of colleagues and, and energy folks and water folks and educators and planners really provides a lot of value to us as practitioners to be able to share best practices and stop trying to reinvent the wheel over and over and over. And so we were at that conference a few years ago, saw a presentation from our esteemed colleagues at UC Santa Cruz that do what we do for a living on their campus. And what we saw was very much in alignment with the problem we were trying to solve. How do you figure out the roadmap to neutrality? How do you quantify these things to make a demonstrable business case to guide high-level decision-making and prioritization of work and prioritization of investment. And they had done a great job to kind of break this down into a math problem. And so they evaluated their carbon neutrality goal. And just to share with you, the entire UC system, by decree from their central president, has made a commitment as a system to achieve carbon neutrality by the year 2025. We're almost there. And they started this work some time ago. They set that goal before the, the CSU. And of course, the UC has essentially R1 research institutions with a, a, a lot larger philanthropy than the state colleges have. They have the ability to do things that the state system cannot afford to do. But 
we do collaborate and we, and we share ideas and resources and best practices and, and we wanted to learn from them. So what our colleagues at Santa Cruz did is they worked with a consultant called uh, EcoShift up in the Bay Area to kind of figure out how to model this. And they identified mm -hmm. four different major variables, those being how much do we invest in energy efficiency retrofits our, of our existing buildings? How much do we spend? How far do we try to drive them down, right? Number two, what is the performance standard we should set for new construction? Because in California, we are governed by Title 24, which is part of the building code, and it sets minimum energy efficiency standards for new construction and major renovations. That is a legal minimum standard as required by code. Campuses can always go above and beyond that should they choose to, to develop higher performance buildings. What is the sweet spot on return on investment? How high should that standard be? Because you have to deal with buildings become more complex, have more complex systems, they require a different level of operation and maintenance support. So you got to balance that. We don't want to build buildings that don't work in a few years because they're so complex. So where's the sweet spot? Third, they had to evaluate in our utility procurement portfolio, how much do we either develop renewable on-site generation or go out and contract for procurement of renewable energy or renewable energy credits through the open market, through power purchase agreements. And then finally, to get to neutrality, what are we going to have to spend on carbon offsets through the carbon market? And so California has a cap and trade program, and ultimately there should be a, a carbon market that is growing and becoming more standardized nationally or even globally. And to that, what is the price of carbon in the future? It's almost like a, a commodity at the, at the current time that can be volatile. How do we project? Like we're pretty experienced in forecasting what the cost of electricity, gas, water, and sewer are going to be in the future because we have a lot of history there. And it's a stable industry sector. You can kind of project where things are going. What's the cost of carbon going to be in five years, 10 years, 50 years? We don't know. There's a lot of data out there. And so Santa Cruz did that work. They built their model. And what they, through running a variety of scenarios to try to optimize that model to say, where do we set the buttons and levers on this model to achieve this carbon neutrality goal most cost effectively, they actually came up with an, an amazing answer. It was not a cost, it was a savings. And so as compared to a business as usual case of doing things the way we have been doing them, they were able to find that these investments would have a return that was greater than their cost. And, and their scenario, I think returned, I wanna say $11 million in net present value savings as compared to the business as usual case. And so we said, okay, this is a great starting place. We've spoke with those colleagues. We kind of got the deep dive on how they went about that, how they did it, what, what their analysis looked like. And then we reached out to that consultant and we retained them. The tool that they developed for Santa Cruz is an open source, open protocol tool. It's all built in Excel. And it's, it's really easily, it's available to any, any institution that wants to use it. And their services are available to customize it for you. So we engaged with them and got under contract to adopt what is called the CESA tool, the Climate and Energy Scenario Analysis Tool, CESA, that was developed for Santa Cruz. We adopted it for Cal Poly. And of course, being, being Cal Poly and being a polytechnic institution, we wanted to make it more specific to our campus needs and our culture and to make it a little more granular and more sophisticated. So we went above those first four variables that I explained in looking at both energy retrofit of existing buildings and standards for new construction. The model was built with four separate building types. And I believe they were high energy user, which would be like a laboratory or a food service building, administrative or office and housing, 
and maybe one other. So there were really broad buckets that had lots of different buildings mixed into them. Said, nah, that's not really the way we classify or analyze or build energy models around buildings. And so Title 24 in California, I believe, has 11 different main building types. And all the energy modeling tools are aligned with that. So we said, let's adopt that. We're going to break this down to be more granular. Our list of buildings should be categorized into these 11 types, both for existing buildings and everything envisioned for future development on the master plan. So we did that. The performance of those buildings, we want to make the data as accurate as possible because as in any modeling exercise, garbage in, garbage out. We want to make sure the tool is going to be accurate. And so we engaged our peers at the chancellor's office and the folks that provide support for our system-wide energy efficiency program where we have a database of building energy performance from all the retrofits that have been done across the entire CSU and the UC campuses and the community colleges campuses going back to the inception of this utility efficiency partnership program that started back in 2004. And so we work with them to get the data from all of the HVAC retrofits, all the lighting retrofits, all the automation projects, et cetera, to populate this model with building EUI, energy use intensity. It's a mm -hmm. metric we use to evaluate building performance on a square foot basis. And so we made the model more, both more granular with 11 types and more accurate to populate it with actual building performance data for various types of construction and various retrofit scenarios. We added a few other things. We tried to evaluate what the impact of what your level of maintenance trades staffing is. And so APA, the Association of Physical Plant Administrators is a, a nonprofit body that works with higher ed institutions on a variety of benchmarking programs. And so APA, publishes guidelines for how to evaluate staffing levels in a trades organization or a custodial organization against a broad data set from higher ed so that leadership can make informed decisions. If I'm staffed at this level, this is kind of the level of quality I can expect from that. And if I have a different expectation for quality, here's the level of staffing that would be needed to accomplish that. So we integrated that staffing model in. We tried to tease out the relationship between staffing accumulation, increase or decrease of your deferred maintenance backlog and how that translates to demonstrable building energy performance. And we were able to find some fundamental relationships to configure the model so that those things could be evaluated in the interplay. And so we updated the model, made it more granular, made it more specific, tailored, calibrated to data sets that we had. And we are now in the process of running various scenarios. And, and what it's finding is that there, again, is a significant opportunity here that investment in energy efficiency, elevation of building performance standards, adoption of more renewables, either on-site or through procurement, all return a positive net present value as compared to the business as usual case. To the last part about carbon offsets, this is where some things get interesting for me. And this is kind of a philosophical conversation by the energy managers and leadership in the CSU. We're not interested in seeing public dollars, state taxpayer dollars, or student fee dollars be spent to purchase carbon offsets on the open market. That's not something that we see those dollars as, as a good use for. We would much rather use our dollars to achieve real reductions that also improve our buildings and our infrastructure and the environments in which all of our faculty, staff, and students live, work, and learn. So that was the number one priority. Let's invest those dollars in actual buildings and infrastructure improvements that have real reductions. And when you get down to where you've reduced it as low as you can go, then you think about carbon offsets to get to zero. Now, the thing that's unique for Cal Poly is we're a large land holding institution. We have approximately 10,000 acres of land holdings. 
most of that here on or adjacent to the, the actual campus core. Another 3,200 acres of distance away up in, in Santa Cruz County, it was a, a piece of land that was donated by a, a philanthropist with a relationship to Cal Poly. And so across those 10,000 acres of land, there is significant opportunity to undertake uh, projects or initiatives to sequester carbon in our own land holdings. We're, we're working with our folks in the College of Agriculture and in Ag Operations to organize a little pilot project with a small amount of funds to see, because we have, as a polytechnic with a large ag college, we have an operational dairy and a feed mill and a number of animal units. We currently compost about 7 million pounds of animal manure a year in windrow composting. We use some of that compost for soil amendment. Some of it's used for animal bedding at the dairy. That's a common practice in ag. Some of it's used for soil amendment in ag operations. Some of it's used for soil amendment in campus landscape. And it is bagged and made for sale publicly as essentially, I believe it's actually achieved certified organic. So is that the best use of that? You know, we don't call those waste streams anymore. We call them nutrient streams. Is, is there value in that? And are we using it to its highest and best value? And so the thing I'm interested in is through direct application of that compost on other ag operations or open range land, the science shows that you can increase both the carbon content of the soil and its ability to hold water. And so through healthy soils initiatives, can we sequester our own carbon on our own land from our own operations rather than spending dollars to buy carbon offsets somewhere else, which in the market today, there's a lot of concern about there about how real carbon offsets really are. So there's some programs where they look pretty defensible and sometimes they look kind of sketchy. And so again, we would rather do this in our own house with our own programs and use that work to create opportunities for curricular development, applied research, and what Cal Poly's mantra and, and pedagogy is, which is hands-on learn by doing. And so this is where it's an interesting thing for me in my career as a facilities professional to engage with academics and students and do work that supports the academic mission of the university and also provides benefit back to facilities in planning and operations. Dennis, there was a tremendous amount there. I'm not sure where to start in responding. The one thing that I really, there are a lot of things I really like, but your thoughts really relay how interconnected so many of these issues are and providing insight into the philosophy as to how the university is approaching this is, is just fascinating. Most people that operate in California feel like just achieving the standards, the goals, the regulatory guidelines that the state set up, just achieving those are a big enough job. It seems like your mindset there at Cal Poly State University is that, well, that's that's kind of table stakes. How do we take that even further? So I, I think that's fascinating. And I wish everybody looked at energy efficiency expenditures the way you do, which is as investments we had a presentation from one of your peers at the University of Virginia a couple of years ago, and they had this program where they had an initial funding for energy efficiency, and the deal was you can reinvest whatever savings you generate from those energy efficiency programs, you could reinvest into other projects. And that initial seed investment led to so many other opportunities. And 
the commercial and industrial companies that, that are here, I think e- even they're now starting to think in terms of let's start with energy efficiency, let's get some cost savings, and then let's put those cost savings to work in other projects that may not have as immediate uh, return. So thank you for, the, for that very rich overview of, of the plan. What, Dennis, related to the, you know, you referenced several times the utility plan of this overall campus-wide plan. What do you think are the most interesting elements of the utility plan? I, I know you've kind of touched on energy efficiency. I know previously we've talked about electrification. What are some of the things in that utility plan that you think are most interesting? Sure. So um, one of the major strategies is what we call electrification, right? So we're in California, we're, we're all planning for relying on the electric grid being carbon neutral by 2045. That means if we can use electricity as our primary energy source as much as possible, that's what we should be doing. Guidance has come out from the chancellor's office to say any campus who is thinking of making an investment in any equipment or system that depends on natural gas as your energy source you really should think about that not just twice, but three or four times before you make those commitments because you're locking yourself in to that life of that asset and its inherent carbon dependency, right? We cannot take the carbon out of natural gas. There's a lot of conversation about renewable natural gas. There is not enough biofuel in the nation to create a significant amount of of biogas that could offset fossil fuel Mm -hmm. gas. So there'll be a place for that but it's not a solution to carbon. And so electrification is is what the solution needs to be. We need to get more efficient. We need to use less gas. We need to move things off of gas over to electricity as a prime source. So what does electrification look like on a university campus? Well, let's start at our central plant. Many campuses have district energy plants with natural gas fired boilers. Hopefully they're very high efficiency or condensing boilers and typically high efficiency electric chillers And those are two separate systems. And you run the boilers when it's cold and the buildings need heat. You run the chillers when it's warm and the buildings need cooling. Interestingly, if you look at the data, and we learned this from our colleagues at at Stanford after they had developed what I would argue is one of the most innovative central plant solutions I've seen in my career. They called that project SESI, S-E-S-I. And their central plant adopted electrification through the use of heat recovery chillers. And so there are the major chiller manufacturers out there have a different flavor of chiller that is designed to do something differently than normal chillers. Let's, let's just talk about how air conditioning works for a second, because a chiller plant works the exact same way as your refrigerator does or your air conditioner at your home or in your car, right? You run a compressor to compress a gas, which causes the ideal gas law causes that gas when you squish it for the temperature to go up, you know, have a hot gas. You can run that hot gas through a heat exchanger to reject heat into a cooler environment. And so when your air conditioner at home does that, that goes to that little outdoor unit that has a blower in it. And when it's running, you can feel heat coming out. So you're rejecting heat to the atmosphere. You then cause that refrigerant to drop to a low pressure, which makes it get cold. And then you take that cold stuff, which is now part vapor, part liquid, and you run it through another heat exchanger which absorbs heat from the environment. And that environment is the indoor of your house. And it goes back to the compressor and just goes in a circle, right? So you, you compress it, the temperature goes up, you use that to be able to reject heat to a lower temperature environment. You drop the pressure, it gets cold and you can absorb heat. So it's not making energy, it's moving energy. And that's why 
refrigeration systems. And of course, if you run them backwards, that's what a heat pump is. You're doing the same thing just in the other direction. We're trying to absorb heat from the environment and bring it into the conditioned space. These systems are more than 100% efficient. And that's caused some interesting conversations with people that have not been exposed to what the refrigeration cycle does. So when you're talking about combustion of natural gas, you cannot exceed 100% efficiency, right? So conventional equipment is maybe 80% efficient. Higher efficiency stuff might be 86% efficient. And if you get into the more sophisticated condensing boilers, you can buy gas-fired equipment that's as high as 98% efficient. Still can't get better than 100%. The vapor compression refrigeration cycle, when used in either cooling or heating mode as a heat pump, is capable of being more than 100% efficient. In fact, it can be about 300% efficient. So that for one unit of input energy in the form of electricity, you can move three units of heat energy from one space to another. And so electrification as a strategy to use that technology for your heating system instead of the combustion of natural gas also has a significant energy efficiency increase. So back to the concept of heat recovery chillers, what these chillers do, so right now, you and your office, me and my office, all the heat that my body is generating, my lights are generating, my computer is generating, all make it up to that little vent in the ceiling. That's the return grill, right? And so that warm air goes back to an air handler in the ceiling where there's chill water flowing in a coil. The heat gets transferred into that chill water. That water goes back to a chiller someplace where through the vapor compression cycle, it's transferred into another loop of water that goes out to a cooling tower and is rejected to the atmosphere by evaporation. So all the heat of the system from my body, the lights, the computer, the sun coming in the windows, and the inefficiencies of the system, the pump, the chiller, all of that heat energy is sent out to the cooling tower and rejected as waste. What if we didn't have to waste it? What a heat recovery chiller does is instead of trying to keep those temperatures and pressures as low as possible to make that system efficient, they're designed to actually create a condenser water temperature that is much higher. So instead of running condenser water at, say, 80, 90 degrees or with really efficient chillers, you know, down at 60 degrees, modern chillers, you might design that chiller to produce condenser water that is 140 degrees. Or you can even get some that are as high as 180. And what that means is there is now enough heat content in that condenser loop to be a heating source. And so what you do with those chillers is you take that condenser water and instead of sending the waste heat out to the cooling tower, you send it over to your boiler plant as a, a supply of heating energy to reduce the consumption of natural gas in the boilers. And so that will be one of our next projects would be to upgrade our chiller plant. We'll pull out a couple of our older chillers, which needs to be done anyway, because they run on R22, which is being phased out by the EA. Right, you only, right. You can only get recycled R22 right now. You can't right. get new anymore. And the cost is skyrocketing. So we're in the process of trying to eliminate, upgrade, or replace all that equipment. So we'll pull a couple of chillers out of the central plant and replace them with a new high-efficiency, variable-speed, environmentally-friendly refrigerant heat recovery chiller that provides us a double benefit so that we can also get new additional capacity in the chiller plant, additional capacity in the boiler plant with no increased footprint. Right In our, our plant, we have 10 pounds of plant in a five-pound building already. It's full. So I, I don't have room to add more boilers, but by converting some of my chillers to heat right. recovery, I can increase my heat generation capacity yeah, with yeah, the same yeah. footprint and get greater efficiency and get significant carbon reductions as electricity gets cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. 
Now, one of the gotchas here is at the district level to make the system work, the idea is to be able to run on as low a hot water temperature as possible. And so our campus, as originally constructed, relied on high pressure steam for heating. In the late 90s, that system had reached end of life. And so we replaced it with a low temperature hot water system. So we have gas fired hot water boilers in our central plant and a distribution system loop that goes all around the campus core and serves all the buildings. Many of those buildings have air handling systems. Some of them have baseboard radiators or convectors. So many of our student dorm rooms or private faculty offices have a baseboard radiator. Those radiators, and there are many, many, many hundreds, thousands of them on campus, they are very dependent on a, a hot supply temperature in order to put out enough heat. So if I start turning the thermostat down on my boiler plant to see if I can go low enough to make a heat recovery chiller work, those are the first systems that are gonna struggle. They will not be able to put out enough heat to serve the load in the building without having to replace every single convector in every single room. And so back to electrification, the strategy for that would be to adopt small heat pumps in those individual spaces. So we would, we would do a project to install a, a local heat pump that could produce a high enough hot water temperature or boost the hot water temperature coming out of the central plant to achieve the temperature needed to serve all the convectors, but allow us to bring the system temperature down to about 140 to make the less costly, more available heat recovery chillers fit into the system. So the, those things have to be done in conjunction. And we're just starting to explore what happens when we start turning our, our temperature of our system down. Fascinating. I mean, your commitment to innovation is incredible and it's all driven by these very ambitious commitments. Dennis, I've probably learned more about how things work in this one conversation than any other. So you've got really ambitious goals. You're constantly checking with peer groups to identify and implement best practices. In order to achieve these goals, you've got to deal with suppliers, right? So it sounds like you're always on the hunt for new technology and new solutions. What's your approach to evaluating new suppliers and new solutions for your, your utility and, and your central plant operations? Yeah, good question. And clearly, folks in this role have a very busy email and voicemail inbox, right? The, the vendors out there strategically find this person and bang on their door to get time meetings, to give pitches and try to sell their, their technology. Love to play with new technology. It's always fun. It's interesting. As an engineer, it's, a, it's interesting and exciting to, to kind right. of play with new technology, but that always comes with risk, right? Nobody wants to be, you want to be on the leading edge, not the bleeding edge. There is significant risk in adopting new technologies. And so the strategy that I, I use and that I see many of my peers use across the state, is this is this purpose for information sharing, right? Somebody's going to try something new. Let's not all try new things at the same time. Let's learn from each other. So where somebody sees value in taking on a risk to evaluate something, whether it's a grant-funded pilot or a vendor is going to give you a smoking deal to try to get their foot in the door, people will take those risks. And then it's incumbent on us to measure them, report on them, and share that information with their peers across the state so that we don't all have to learn those lessons the hard way. And that is the purpose of these statewide sustainability conferences and regular business meetings of our peers. So the CSU energy managers have a business affinity group called the EUMC, the Energy and Utility Managers Council. And so much like vice presidents, executive facility officers, directors of facility operations, we have a business affinity group and we meet as peers 
at least quarterly, if not more often. Pre-COVID, we try to travel and see each other's campuses and our kind of most recent projects and things to show off in Central Plant so that we can learn from each other and apply this learning from an individual campus to the 23 campus system so mm-hmm. that we are working together and essentially getting high value without taking on excessive risk. There's only so much time in the day, so I, I have to decline a lot of kind of cold calls and exploratory. But just from my experience, you know, you give it the smell test and go, this is snake oil, thank you, but no, or I already know from up here that the reality doesn't line up with the sales pitch. If through the smell test or that kind of peer awareness, there appears to be some there, there, I'll go a little farther, I'll have a little deeper conversation, might get a proposal, bounce it off peers, and, and maybe do a pilot to try something. My colleague, Kenny Seaton down at the Dominguez Hills campus is one of the most aggressive. That guy is willing to take a lot of risk and he, he is a, a perpetually adopting the latest, greatest technology right out of the box. And many of them have been wins, right? It's an interesting space, like fuel cells. The governor, back when Schwarzenegger was the governor, the fuel cells were gonna save the world. I've been hearing from that, that market sector that we're gonna crack this material science problem in the actual stack of the cell. In five years, this technology is gonna mature and it's gonna take over all the market share. And that just has not happened. In fact, many of the campuses who adopted fuel cell technology early, early in some highly incentivized pilots regret some of those decisions. And so there's a lot of caution that's necessary from a risk management perspective as to what new technologies you take on. I always advocate for, you gotta do your due diligence you never just swallow a sales pitch. You got to see data. You want to hear. You want to hear references from places where it's already been installed. Talk to the energy manager. Talk to the operations and maintenance folks. Hear the real story from the people that live with this thing now of how it really turned out. Yeah, it's it's uh, fascinating to see how important that peer group referral is, and it makes sense. I get calls on a regular basis. People saying, "Hey, we're considering this technology. Do you know someone that's deployed it? Because we'd like to." see what their experience was. Thanks, Dennis, for this session, and we really appreciate your tremendous insights. You can hear more from Dennis on episode 11 of Beyond the Meter, where we're joined by Dennis Guerrero, VP of Finance at Ithaca College. Dennis, we look forward to following your progress in the future. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for listening to this podcast and being a part of our community. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can become a part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're honored to have the opportunity to share conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Dennis in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. 
To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.